Talking about obedience this morning. Obedience which is at the heart of the Christian life. Obedience which, if, if we know Christ, we want obedience. We want to be obedient. We want to do what is right. We want to do what His Word says. We want to honor God. But obedience is one of those things that sits at the center of the Christian life and is something that we desire, but it's also something we become very confused about at times and something that can bog us down at times in the Christian life and trying to understand exactly how this obedience fits into my relationship with God is really important. And Jesus speaks to it this morning. We are in John chapter 14. We're only going to uh, read verse 15 and talk about it. So, uh, short reading of the scripture this morning. John 14, verse 15. Hear then the word of God. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to you now. We long to hear your word spoken into our hearts and our lives with power. Speak to us of love. Speak to us of obedience. And change us that we might experience with power the truth of your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you love me, you will obey me. Jesus says, by their fruit, and I think in there we can read obedience, by their lives, by the shape of their lives, what they do and what they don't do, the fruit that their life bears, by their fruit you will know them, because if they love me, they will obey me, they will obey me. If someone loves Jesus, what Jesus is saying, I think quite literally, Jesus is saying, if someone loves me, you will literally be able to see it, by their fruit you'll know them. If they love me, they obey me. Obedience is this indispensable mark of a follower of Christ. Following means obedience. Now, following Jesus might mean more than obedience, and I think certainly it does, but it cannot mean less than obedience to follow Christ. In fact, the very definition, I think, of hypocrisy in the church as we talk about such things, and as that word is thrown around, I think the very definition of hypocrisy would be to say, I follow Christ, but I have really no intention of being diligent to live a life that is obedient to Him. I follow Jesus, I'm just not all that concerned about obeying Him. Luke six forty six. it's there in your bulletin, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I mean, it's a great question. It was one of those, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you say these things to me, profess these things, and then don't do what I tell you to do? In other words, stop saying it or start doing it. But the two don't belong together in that sense. A person who claims to follow Christ but does not seek to live according to his word is deceiving himself. This is what James tells us in his letter to the church in uh, James chapter 1, he makes a statement, and he says, Church of, of Jesus, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
right? It's there in your bulletin. Be doers of the word. You know, hearing the word is easy. Hearing the word is something that we, that we do on a regular basis. In America, we actually have such an information overload of Christian things. You get in your car and you turn on the radio or you pop in the CD and you see it on TV, you listen to it on your computer, you listen to it on, you got Sunday school, you got Sunday morning, you got Sunday night small group, you got we hear and we hear and we hear and we hear and information flows into our lives. We know more biblically in some ways. But if the life is not marked by actual obedience, the Bible says we're deceiving ourselves. There's a deception going on about what we say we believe and about what we say we are and and so forth and that we follow Jesus when in fact we're not sure we even know what that means. James chapter 2, James a little further on, the next chapter in the same letter as he writes to the church, he says, faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Right? There in your bulletin. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's no good. It's not genuine. There's no life in it. The reformers were fond of saying that we are saved by grace alone. Right? Sola fide, one of the five great solas of the Reformation. Sola fide, by, by faith alone. Through, it's by grace alone, through faith alone. But they would always say that, that, that we are saved by faith alone. Faith, true faith, is never alone. Right? You're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, but faith, true faith, is never alone. It bears fruit. It, 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 it's, it's a changed life. True faith is a person is born again. Behold, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come faith we're saved by faith alone grace alone but it's never alone it always is a fruit bearing dynamic reality birthed in the life of the one who has it Matthew chapter 7 there in your bulletin Jesus says everyone who hears these words of mine this is that we just did this in Sunday school we're in the middle of an HPC 101 weekend it's our new members class where you can get to know us a little bit better and Sunday morning we talk about spiritual growth and genuine spiritual growth and genuine spiritual growth has a lot to do with not just what we hear but the actual change in life change be more like Christ and so we I asked a question in there Matthew at the end of Matthew chapter 7 there's a little parable Jesus tells after the sermon on the mount he reaches the end he's been teaching them a long sermon for three chapters Matthew 5 6 7 at the end of it he says a little parable about a man who built his house on the rock and a man who built his house on the sand and I was asked a question and, and it's because it was one day asked of me and I got it wrong and I always ask the question, what is the rock in that parable? And the answer always comes back, Jesus. Right? Of course it's Jesus. Well, first of all, it's Sunday school, so the answer is Jesus. Right? But also, but beyond that, the rock is Jesus. But it actually, the text doesn't say that. If you read it, it actually says, Jesus says at the end of his sermon, he says, the man woman who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man or a woman who builds her house on a rock. So it is this, it's Jesus, it's hearing him, but it's actually the, the doing that gives us that foundation, uh, a, a sense. Jesus says, the one who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, doesn't do them, is like a man who built his house on the rock. You're building a sandcastle, and when the tide comes in, 
It's going to get ugly for this, the chasm. Right? You built your house on a rock, and when the wind and the waves hit it, it will stand. You build your house on the sand, and when the wind and the waves, it will fall. And he says at the end of that, and great was the fall of it. A life without obedience, he says, is a sandcastle waiting for the tide. It's a condition for God's blessing. This is one of those that it's interesting and it's to wrestle with. Just back in chapter 13, if you flip your page back, 13, verse 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Right? If you know them, that's good. If you do them, blessed. Right? If you know these things, that's one thing. You're a hearer of the word. That's good. That's a good start. But the doing of the word... Now that brings blessing into the life of one who does it. So he has this, you know, in, in my uh, journey group, we're in my small group and we're working on journey material. It's a discipleship material. We got homework and we, uh, we are um, memorizing scripture together, which has been really good. And Joshua 1.8, something I memorized as, as a young believer, uh, we've redone and, and it says in Joshua, so this is Old Testament and New Testament, this this blessing that's attached to the, to the doing, which James says the same thing, uh, is also Old Testament. In other words, it's God's word throughout from beginning to end. He says, this book of the law will not depart, shall not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night. You'll think about it all the time. You'll think about it when you're driving around in the car. You'll think about it in the shower. You'll think about it as you're going to bed, and when you get up, you'll spend time in it, and you'll think about it. The book of the law should not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it all the time so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Tonight I don't have to do that one. Check it off my list. Of, then you will have, for then you will be prosperous. Then you will have good success in the doing of God's word, knowing it is one thing, but thinking about it and spending time with it in such a way that it actually shapes my life that I am careful to do what is written in it to be changed by the Word of God, to be conformed to the Word of God, is where prosperity, and this is you know, not a material prosperity verse, not a prosperity gospel verse, but will make you your way prosperous and you will have good success, I believe, is to have God's blessing in your life in many various and tangible ways. As soon as we start talking about obedience, and I'm starting to, to beat this drum, and in the Christian church there's this thing, you start talking about obedience, and uh, we start going in various different directions. There are ways that we start to be confused about it, because we hear it and we see it. You read God's Word. You cannot be a Christian and sit under the teaching of God's Word for any length of time and not realize obedience is a biblical thing, it's a good thing, it's what Jesus calls us to, it's, what it's, it's, you know, it's part of the Christian life, and it's something that I want. I don't know very many Christians that don't want to be obedient. But we enter into some confusion. We end up falling off. You know, there's this biblical call to obedience and the way that Jesus brings us into it. And then there are these dangers on either side that we tend to fall into. Uh, Pitfalls, misunderstandings. And usually they're talked about in circles. You've probably heard them both before. The, the, uh, The errors of either legalism or on the other side we call license. 
or antinomianism. We'll talk about that in a second. But legalism, we just fall into a trap. We hear this thing that, that there's blessing attached to obedience, and Jesus calls us to obedience, and we're deceiving ourselves if we're not trying to be in seeking obedience in our lives. And legalism is that error, it's that mindset then that we end up, as we seek to be obedient, that we end up in the air of trying to earn God's favor, of, of trying to get God to love me by doing the right things, doing enough, or doing them the right way, or, or having a certain amount of success over my failure. You know, that I want God to love me, I want God to bless me, and so we start thinking, when I'm good and when I'm obedient, God loves me. And when I'm not good and when I'm not obedient, God obviously does not love me, or He's not pleased with me. And so we end up in this cycle of trying hard to be good and obedient so that God will be pleased with me and He'll love me and I can feel good about myself and then I fail. And then I beat myself up and then I drift off over here until I come back around and I try hard and I try hard to be good. And then for a while I feel like God loves me and there's this cycle. He feels he's obviously pleased with me because I'm pleased with myself because I'm doing pretty good right now, you know, because I've, I've tried hard and I've managed. And there's this cycle of of trying to be good enough and to be good enough to live under this sense of God's pleasure. And it's an error. The other side of the coin would be some who recognize that that's not the way the gospel, the gospel sets us free from that trap. It sets us free from the, the rat race and the gerbil wheel of trying to earn God's favor and God's love and his pleasure. And so recognizing this, and a lot of times, and I, we find it both in churches like ours, but in a Reformed church where we try to labor and to live under a sense of God's free grace. There's the other side of this coin, which often we end up falling into. We say and understand that I know I can't earn God's love. We said in Sunday school, as strong as I can say it, it is the, 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 the grace of God, the salvation of God is a gift. And it's not something that can be earned. And we must embrace it in Christ who has done everything for us. And so those who start to get the gospel this way, I can't earn God's love. God's love is unconditional. And, you know, and he's not going to love me any more tomorrow than he does today. Because if he loves me in Christ, and Christ's righteousness is perfect, and so I'm perfect in Christ, there's nothing that I can do today, good or bad, that, that will change tomorrow. He will love me the exact same as he does today because his love is an eternal Love. It is a steadfast love. It's a love that's ours in Christ, like the love of a father to his child. And whatever the child does, it may, you know, cause some issues in the relationship. Whatever the father does, he does it because he loves him. So we're saved by grace, not by works of obedience. Romans 3.28. This is that opposite, the, the, the other, well, I shouldn't say the opposite. It's the other side of the coin of James, which says that faith without works is dead. Right, And then Paul comes back with the rejoinder, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, from our obedience. God loves me no matter what. And so the danger there, right, fall off the other side. God loves me no matter what. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Obedience isn't a big deal. You know, the kind of life that I live. I mean, I, I, I have this freedom, what we call license. Some call it the big word antinomianism. Nomos is that Greek word for law. Antinomos is against the law. This lawlessness. You know, license that says, you know, obedience doesn't, if I'm not saved by my works, then it doesn't matter what I do. And so I'm really not that worried about it. My life is not that obedient. I, I just careless, 
disobedience. God loves me. The Bible would deliver us from both of these errors, right? From, from the bondage of legalism and from careless disobedience, genuine obedience, biblical obedience, gospel obedience, walks the knife edge between these errors and parts the waters, so to speak, so that we can walk through on dry land to a life that is pleasing to God. Frees us from slavish obedience of fear and careless disobedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, there's a couple ways to hear that, and I know one of them is, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, and you almost hear it like a threat. <laughs> right? If you love me, you'll keep my commands, and you're not, and so there's this, you know, this, but I wouldn't hear, I, would, I want to hear it a little bit differently, and I think the Scripture gives us a little bit more warrant to take it differently. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, and I think, I think it is an invitation to love him. And in loving him, we will learn and we will find the grace and the power to keep his commands. Love. Love produces obedience. Right? Romans 6, 17, there under the second point, he says, You who were once slaves to sin have now become obedient from the heart. Right, and you see the two there, how that avoids the error of both of those? There's obedience, there's not carelessness about the things that concern God. There's obedience, but it's not a slavish obedience of the rat race. You were delivered from slavery, and now there's an obedience that comes from the heart. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed, the heartly is genuinely in it. You know, so much Christian obedience, the heart's not in it. We do what we're supposed to do. There's so many rule keepers. You know, we're rule keepers. And we know the rules and we do our best to keep them. But as often or not, or we know we're supposed to help, we're supposed to serve, we're supposed to do stuff, and so we do stuff. And, but there's this grudgingness to it, or there's this, the heart's not really in it. I showed up and I did it. What more do you want from me? I'm not sure I want much more from you, but I think Jesus wants more from us. But he also wants to, to give us what he wants from us in the sense that the heart, be, to be generally in it, he says, genuinely in it, he says, you must fall in love. Right? You must fall in love. And we know this. Love changes everything. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. But if you want to live a life of fruitful obedience to God that lasts more than an hour, you know, where you decide you're going to do it again and you decide you're going to do it. And if you want a life of fruitful obedience to God that lasts any length of time, is genuine change that persists through time, we must fall in love with Christ. Because if we love Him, if we love Him, we will obey Him. The heart of obedience is the heart of love. And in many ways, the pursuit of a life of obedience is none other than a pursuit of Jesus. To know Him and to love Him, and to walk with Him, and to enjoy fellowship with Him, and to be in that place where He speaks His love and His grace into my life, right? In, in a way, an existential, existential, experiential way that I, he, he is loving me, and I know, and I love, and I walk with Him. The, the pursuit of obedience is the pursuit of that relationship with Christ. The truth is, most of us know what God wants from us. 
The truth is, most of us have been around long enough that we know what His commands are. We know most of them. We know what it is that the Christian life demands of us as we follow Christ. But the, here's you know, the thing. We need what we need then is the power and the motivation to do it. Right? A lot of it is motivation. Motivation is power, right? If you're motivated to do something, then you're, you're up and doing. It, in, it, in a sense, it's, it's the life of the battery, motivation. You know that whatever it is that drives us. So what is it? That, that, that is the proper motivation that gives us the power to do and to rise up and fulfill the law. And we believe the Scripture says again and again that love is the only motivation and power that is able to, to, to fulfill God's law, answer His commands with obedience. What we need and what we want is the power to obey, the motivation of heart, for our heart to be in it, to obey to change, to grow, to do the things that He calls us to, what we need in a very real sense, is more love. There's that song, and I, I, sometimes I don't like it, and sometimes I do like it. And saying, so, you know, more love, more power, more love, more power. You know, and there's something about it that bothers me, but there's something about it that is right. There is a sense in what we need is more love, right? We need to be captured by God's love for us and what He has done for us in Christ. And so that as He has first loved us, so we would love Him. And that our love would become the the motivation for a Christian life. Only love can supply the power and motivation to put the old habits of sin to death and to be set free, to do all those things that He calls me to do and to be all those things that He calls me to be and to serve in all the ways He calls me to serve and to sacrifice all those ways that He wants me to sacrifice. And and, And it has to be and it can only come from the heart. We know that love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't go to any of the ten and He doesn't go to any of the application here, there, and everywhere. Jesus pulls and extracts out of places in the Old Testament and puts together and hands back to them and says, you've learned it in the Old Testament, it is there. Love the Lord your God and love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of who you are, with everything that you have. Give yourself to God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor. And when you give yourself to God, you'll find loving your neighbor is not as hard as you think. But you've got to do the first one before the second one will flow. But we see this. Jesus then says the interesting thing. On these two commands, all the law and all the prophets depend. Right? In other words, if you do the first two, if you love God and let the influx of His love for you so uh, change your heart that you love your neighbor, you'll keep both tables of the law. You won't take His name in vain. You'll have no other gods. You will honor the Sabbath. You won't steal from your neighbor. You won't. He says that, that, that if you do the first two, these great commandments, all the others will flow. And if you try to do all the others... That list of rules, even the Big Ten, and do not first love the Lord your God with all your heart. It will be He will be your ma- your master, and you will be the servant, and you will grudgingly do what you're supposed to do. Romans thirteen ten, Paul says, "Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love seeks to please and to serve the one 
loves. Love changes everything. You know, I was thinking about this in my own family. There are times when, when things are asked of me, and depending on where I am on that day, but there's times there are things are asked. Sometimes people walk in the door of the church and are looking for help or they want and different folks, and there are times that, you know, can you get me somewhere? Can you drive me somewhere and get me gas? Sometimes I would begrudge driving down the street to help you. You know, I'm feeling put out. But, you know, when my daughter needs help on my, you know, on my day off, I'll get up early and go, and what does she need me to do? I'll spend the whole day doing it, happily. You know, where I may begrudge driving down the street in one context, if my son, who's up in Johnson City at school, needed my help, I'd get up early and drive up there, to, you know, do what I need and drive back in the same day, and I'd do it happily. And I'd make the most of the trip. And, but what changes the, what changes just a little action of driving down the street versus even driving across the state is, is the heart of love, <laughs> right? Love changes everything. Love is a motivating power that changes us. Love makes us willing. Love can even make us eager. Somebody has a cause in their life, you know, and their, their cause, and we say, you know, that they're, they're all in. They're all about their cause. They're pouring themselves out on behalf of this cause, yeah, there's something that has captured their imagination, something that they love, something that they value, that they believe in so much that it, it's a surpassing value that they willingly will go all out. Second Corinthians 5.14, there it is in your bulletin. Jesus says, or Paul says about Christ, says the love of Christ compels us, controls us, constrains us. Three C words that have been used translating that Greek word there, that it, the love of Christ controls us, it con- constrains us, it compels us. Because we've concluded that this one has died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. They would live a life of obedience to God, to Christ. They might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised for them. God so loved us, he was dying to serve us, quite literally, right? God so loved the world that he was motivated. He was dying to serve us. So willing to give himself and to pour himself out. Love compels. Right? It's this internal, and this is the thing, it's an internal motivating power. Right? When it says, when you are compelled to do something, right? Compelled, it means it's not something necessarily external, that is making you do it, that you're complying to. If I'm compelled to do something, it's an internal driving force. Constrained or compelled to live for the one who for your sakes, he says, that they no longer live for themselves, but for the sake of the one who died, who poured himself out for our sake and and have been loved so well, loved to death, loved with the, the outpouring of all that he is and that he has. He so loved us that he gave himself for us. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, it's there in your bulletin, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered everything, the loss of everything. I'm willing to put to death the old man and put on the new, de- the new man. I'm willing to put away my old life and to put on a new life, right? For the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I would do anything. 
It is only the surpassing worth of Christ. It is only when who he is and what he has done, the, the worth of Christ is our Savior, is God incarnate, living the life we failed to live, dying the death we deserve to die, accomplishing everything on our behalf, laying down his life for our sakes. And it's only as Christ, who he is and what he has done, so fills and so uh, has a hold of our hearts and our minds that our lives will change. Only we love because he first loved us. And it's only that love, that's the return of love, the response of love, that is the power to transform the human life, to captivate the heart. Galatians 2, Paul says, you know, I'm crucified with Christ. You know, when he died, I died. What he did, he did for me. The death that he died was for my sin. I'm, I'm crucified with Christ in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear the motivation in that? His whole life. I'm crucified with the life that I now live. I live by faith. Faith, I think, is love. It may be more than love, but it's not less than love. You cannot have faith and not love, right? And he says, the the life that I now live, I now live by faith in the Son of God, a response of love and trust to the Son of God. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's this this return of of a wholehearted love to Christ for who he is and what he has done. That's why Paul prays for the church. It's interesting in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul has his prayer for the church. And if any of you know, have been in classes on Ephesians and heard it taught, you know that Ephesians is six chapters. And the first three chapters are in, indicative. They're teaching. They're laying out. There are no commands in chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 1 to 3 are the outlaying of the gospel, what God has done. From before the foundations of the world, right? He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, uh, you know, to be adopted. We've been predestined to be adopted as his sons. And he goes through that while we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. And he has seated us with Christ at, the, in, at his own right hand. We're seated in the heavenly places so that, so that in, 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 in the ages ahead, he can show forth the immeasurable riches of his grace. And he goes on and he stacks it up through chapter 3. And then there's this little section at the end of chapter 3 that he prays before he starts chapter 4. And if anybody knows Ephesians, 4 to 6 is all, almost all commands. He starts right out of the gate. Love one another. Forgive one another. Don't lie to one another. Be truthful to one another. Be filled with the Spirit. And he, and he goes on down the line. And right in between all of this gospel chapters of what God has done and this call to the obedient life is a prayer. It's there in your bulletin under the last point, Ephesians 3. He says this, Church, O Church of Christ, I am praying that you might have strength to comprehend with all of God's people, the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. A love that surpasses knowledge, that would blow your mind as you try to understand its length and depth and its wits. It will surpass the ability of your mind to get it. And I'm praying that he would give you power to comprehend it so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what we need, isn't it? 
Right? That should be the prayer before you give one command in the church, before one thing that you're supposed to do or anything in that vein, is to talk about first the gospel of what God has done and pray for the grace of God to comprehend, to understand at such a level and at such a depth that we would be overwhelmed by the dimensions of His love for us that as these commands come to us, that our heart's in it. Our heart is in it. We are willing to give ourselves. I'll skip about a page and end with this image for you. It's an image from the Lord of the Rings. And I understand that uh, not everybody has seen the movies or read the books. But you don't need to to get the picture. right? Let me give you a picture. Gandalf has a friend, a colleague, that he is uh, engaged in the war against darkness with. And this this colleague, Saruman, rebels against everything that is good. Saruman betrays the fellowship of, of light, of goodness, and they're fighting the battle against evil. And Saruman then begins in his rebellion. There's a great hole at the bottom of his tower where the earth has been opened up, and he builds this underground labyrinth of tunnels and, and rooms. And underneath the ground in this labyrinth of tunnels, there is, he has got all the machinery of war. Right? He's creating, it's, they're forging weapons and forging siege materials. And they're, they're literally breeding darkness and evil, breeding orcs to fight the battle. And so you've got this, this labyrinth of dark tunnels filled with the machinery of rebellion and war and filth and darkness. And when, when, when they come against him, and those on the standoffs, you know, come, the ends come to, to, to destroy these works. What do they do? They don't, they don't climb down the hole and go through every passageway trying to tear down each thing and clean up the filth that's going on. And he doesn't go down there at all. They go uphill where the river has been dammed up. And through great effort, they tear down the dam and they free the floodwaters. They come rushing out into the gorge and come rushing down, pour in through that hole and, and courses through all of the tunnels of that labyrinth, just tearing before it all the machinery of rebellion, all of the machinery of war, all the filth that's been breeding down there is just, is just washed out by this great flood uh, that... That, that does what they would not have been able to do. Romans 5.5 5 says this, there in your bulletin, God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hearts are an underground labyrinth full of the machineries of rebellion, of, of filth, of things that ought not to be in the sight of God. And the answer is not to go climbing down the hole. And to go looking to tear down each piece of machinery and to scrub each wall of things. The, the goal, go uphill, right? And, and bring forth, Jesus says, God, Paul says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts. A flood of grace. A flood that can wash out from the deep places of you things that you didn't even know were there. Only the love of God outpoured can cleanse the heart, can renew the heart, can make the heart willing, can make the heart loving, can fulfill in us all that we long to be. He says, if you love me, 
And then he says, we love only because he loved us first. My prayer for you, my prayer for myself this morning is that you would have grace with all the saints to comprehend the depth and width and height, all the dimensions of God's love for you in Christ, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God, the Spirit of God outpoured into the deep places, setting us free to live for Him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that our strength is not enough. Our efforts to clean up our lives have accomplished little. Our pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying hard have resulted in drudgery. Father in heaven, we long to love Jesus in such a way that our lives flow with an obedience, a love for you. Would you come forth this morning and set us free by your grace? Would you pour out your spirit afresh? You have promised that to those who ask for your spirit that you would give freely. Would you pour out your spirit this morning? Fill us with your spirit. Cleanse the deep places of our hearts. Set us free from not only the the guilt and the filth of our sin, but set us free from its power. Give us grace to comprehend the love that is ours in Christ. That our lives would be given back to you, compelled, constrained, controlled by the love of Christ. We ask and pray it in his name. Amen.